All right, so this week we are in Leviticus chapter 2. But before we dig into Leviticus, I want to start with this, because we're going to be talking about salt today. I need my own hand down. Uh, I was reading about this this week, the expression worth your weight in salt. You know that expression? And I had always uh, thought that to be more of an, not an insult, but like worth your weight in salt. You know, I mean, salt is a pretty common kind of thing. What's the big deal? Like worth your weight in gold. Okay, that's really valuable. Worth your weight in salt. Who cares? But some of you may know this. I mean, this is Salt City close by, right? Um, But in ancient times, uh, to come by salt was very difficult. You'd have to travel. There were only particular areas where you could get it from. And so, um, you know, groups, tribes would have to travel hundreds of miles. It was the salt trade. The salt market was its own thing. And, of course, it was really important because you didn't have what in the ancient world? Refrigeration, Refrigeration right. And so in order to preserve things, um, you, needed, you needed salt. And so this article that I was reading made the case that salt is responsible for the expansion and the exploration of the world. Because, uh, you know, explorers wouldn't have been able to go hither and yon if they weren't able to preserve it. You think of uh, um, even the pilgrims as they were coming over on the Mayflower. They had all their hard tack. You know, there's salty meats and everything. It's just delicious, I'm sure. Um, and so the upshot of that is to say worth your weight in salt is actually it's a compliment, right? It it's a, means it's a really valuable thing. Salt is one of those things that we kind of take for granted nowadays, although I don't. Show of hands, how many of you are like, it doesn't matter what, what it is, you're putting salt on it. Anybody else? couple of you, yeah. How many of us also have to go see the doctor about our heart? Okay. Um, no. But it frustrates Anne sometimes because it, I feel bad. It doesn't matter how delicious it is. She's got it spiced perfectly, but I'm still like, nothing a little salt couldn't improve just a bit. I digress. Today we're going to be talking about salt and seeing how it shows up in a significant way here in Leviticus in connection with these offerings. So open your Bible if, uh, if you've got it in front of you. If you need to grab one, we've got more over here. Uh, on us, pull some over. Anybody? Bible? Yes. No shame. No shame. A couple more. Anyone else? Okay, so open it up to Leviticus chapter 2. And today we're going to be talking about the grain offering. So last week we got started with what are called the voluntary offerings in these first three chapters. We looked at the burnt offering, the whole burnt offering, which I I think I forgot to mention this, but uh, the Greek word, um, which will get you... It gets used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for burnt offering and whole burnt offering. It's a word that you're familiar with. The word is holocaust, which you start to think about that theologically like, whoa, that's really interesting. The burnt offering. Carl, you probably knew that from from your research. But um, the, the whole burnt offering was the holocaust that was offered up to God. For the atonement of the sins of the people. We talked last week how these sacrifices, they have a law side to it. They have a, you know, thou shalt, a commandment side to it. But that fundamentally, this is grace. This is gift. It's God making provision for his people, how their sins can be atoned for. What they can do in order to remove that stain, to remove that that blot of guilt. God makes provision for it through these sacrifices. So the most fundamental one was the 
burnt offering. You could do uh, from your herd, you do a bull or a cow. You could do from the flock, uh, whether that be sheep or goat or even a pigeon or a dove. And here in chapter 2, we move into another offering that can be offered, the grain offering. Uh, so let's just go ahead and start. I'll read just the first few verses here as we get going. Leviticus 2, verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Okay, so, well, first of all, I notice in some translations, and maybe some of you have this, it'll say the laws for cereal offerings, which just kind of cracks me up. You know. <laughs> Here are my Cheerios, Lord. You know, <laughs> Honey nut, because I love you so much. Um, but it's, a, it's a grain offering. This is a raw grain offering. And what's significant about this is that even when it comes to the burnt offering, even though the Lord makes provision, not just for the herd and the flock, but even for the pigeons, but here it goes one step further. Everybody's got grain, right? You might not have a herd. You might not have a flock, but every single person would have grain. This was just a basic, utter staple of the ancient diet, even as it's still a staple of the, the diet here today. It's another expression of how God wants to ensure that everyone is able to uh, um, offer sacrifices and receive the blessings that come from that. So the grain offering was just a basic kind of thing. But the, significant, the really significant part about this grain offering is who does this ultimately bless? Did you catch this? In the first few verses, who does the grain offering really bless and serve? It's offered up to God, but I heard it some over here. The priests. See, God provides for his priests through his people, through his people. So you, you bring your grain offering, you pour oil and frankincense on it. Now, frankincense, of course, we think of, we associate that with uh, the Magi, right, bringing that. But uh, frankincense was a very common um, incense that could be added. We're not exactly sure why. I mean, probably just the, um, that aroma, that pleasing aroma. And the oil, um, you take it. You have its memorial portion, so a portion of it will be set aside and burned on the altar as that sacrifice up to the Lord. But the rest of it is for Aaron and his sons. It's the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. So here is God providing for his priests who are not farmers. They're not out working the land. They're serving in the, in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And God's saying, I'm going to provide for these folks whom I've set apart um, through your offerings. And there's something really powerful and beautiful uh, about God's ordering and arranging this. It could have just been the case, like, you give this directly to, you know, here's our pay to the priests, right? Uh, fill out a W-2. We'll make sure we get that all taken care of. But instead, God does it through, it's not as though it's a heavenly laundering service, okay? It's not, it's not like a sacrifice laundering kind of thing. But it's, you know, at the end of the year, God sends home the letters for all of the you know, 501c3 gifts, um, but uh, that he is receiving those gifts and then giving them, having been sanctified and redeemed and set apart, giving them to his people.
people, to his priests who are serving. And this is a principle that carries through to the New Testament. So go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. By the way, I don't mean to be too flip about our system in America of 501c3 and all those. I think they're gifts, they're blessings. And so long as they're still in practice, uh, I think the church is, is good to be able to avail ourselves of it, but also not to become reliant or dependent on it because I think a day will probably come perhaps in the not-too-distant future when it won't be there. But so long as it's there, we will gladly receive it. All right, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 11 through 14. Uh, all right. So actually, I'm going to back up uh, to verse 8, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul writes, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Clearly, that's about how you uh, compensate your priests and pastors, right? Well, that's how the direction that Paul's going to take that. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay? So this is a deeply biblical idea that um, those who have, as their vocation, set aside to serve God's people, first as priests in the Old Testament, as pastors in the New Testament, are to make their living uh, through the gifts of, of God's people. Now, there's also room, as Paul himself has practiced, for what would be called like the worker priest. You know, Paul was a, a tent maker, so he had, as we would say in modern parlance, a side hustle, okay? So uh, Paul had his side hustle where he was uh, making money from there, but he was doing that especially because he wanted to make, like he says, no obstacle for the proclamation of the gospel. But he's, he's pointing to himself as the exception rather than the rule. That normally is the case that as you don't uh, muzzle the ox, um, likewise you don't muzzle the pastor, hopefully, um, but instead he's able to make his living from the gospel. And this goes right back to Leviticus there. We see that this is how God has, has ordained and arranged things. And Paul also says something similar in uh, Philippians 4. Uh, the Philippians, so far as we can tell, were the, the primary congregation uh, who was supporting Paul. Okay? Um, just like nowadays we'll, missionaries will have supporting congregations, the Philippian congregation was probably Paul's main supporters, the ones who were subsidizing, providing for his ministry. And he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I mean, this is not just flowery language here. This is language taken right out of Leviticus chapters 1 and 2. He's describing the Philippians' gifts that they are making. That's Philippians 4.18. The gifts that they are making um, and those offerings are tantamount to that grain offering that was offered in the Old Testament. So think about how this works in, in nowadays. And I think the most vivid and 
to my mind, a uh, really wonderful example of this is the use of the parsonage. Right? Not every church has a parsonage, um, and I think that's okay too. But to me, I think that there's something very, and put it this way, Old Testamenty about the pastor living in the, the parsonage. We don't, we don't own a home here. We uh, make our living through the generosity and through the gifts of God's people. Um, who provided a wonderful home for us. And not only that, continue the upkeep of it, which is great. You know, things break. Court, I need some help over here. <laughs> um, it's, such, it's, it's such a gift, and we are, are so grateful for it. And I really think that it's not, just, it's not just some old-fashioned thing, but it's really reflective of that biblical practice. Um, so thoughts or questions, comments about how this, these offerings were given to God and used in order to... Um, provide for his priests. Yeah, Carla. What happened to the surplus? I mean, yeah, surely. Five, five priests and you've got a thousand offerings. Yeah, that's a good question. And her question was, what happened to the to the surplus? And I can't say for sure. Um, again, they don't have the refrigeration. How are they? How are they keeping all of this? Um, maybe they offer that up as additional sacrifices. Because the other thing that's clear is, where are they eating this? Right? They're not putting it in a doggy bag and bringing it home. They were actually um, appointed and commanded to eat it there at, in the, the temple courts in the, uh, and in the tabernacle courts. That's where they were eating this food. So unless they're gorging themselves every single day, you're right. Um, they're not going to be able to finish all of it off. But that's a good question. Yeah, one of those things you would have liked to have seen how that worked. Yeah, Esther. Did they uh, give it to the poor or widows? Or? Well, I, I think that's probably part of the answer. So Esther suggests, did they give it to the poor and the widows? And um, almost certainly, because we know that this was the practice in the New Testament. We see it in Acts chapter 2, for instance, when they're collecting the offerings, the gifts from the people. It provides for the pastors for their livelihood. But then also, then it's, it's distributed to the poor, to anyone who had need. So that's probably a, 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 gets us a long way to the answer of that question. Good. Other thoughts or questions? You're like, I can't tell if you're raising your hand or trying to swat that fly that really likes you over there. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. My grandfather was a teacher Albrecht in Iowa, and they used to get the surplus that the farmers... Yes. You know. Yeah. How cool is that? You know, provide for the teachers too. And you guys probably know this also, just old Trinity history. What's now the parsonage that we live in was originally the teacherage. Um, so the, the teacher here at Trinity School lived in what's now the parsonage, and the house next door to us that the Turner family now owns was originally the parsonage. After the school closed around World War II, then the church sold off the parsonage and just uh, made the teacherage into the parsonage. But the, the teacherage, as an extension of that pastoral office, they recognized also a, a responsibility to provide for them as well. So, yeah. And, you know, God's people here share their bounty also. Um, whether it be you know, from the earth or whether it be from the oven, we are always gr grateful to receive that kind of, of bounty. That's why pastors often are um, full in appearance. Um, but, yeah. I, I wonder sometimes, you know, God does these things in a way that if he hadn't said, give to me first, yeah. we wouldn't be giving to you. Sure. There. Yes, yeah, exactly. Start, start with me, and that continues to be the right principle, right? Yeah. We, first fruits, start there, and then everything else will fall into place. Yeah. But if not, 
then we wouldn't be giving None of you, it will, yeah. It wouldn't be. I mean, it would be a different type of heart. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. Hmm. And there's another part of this, too, um, where you see this, that priests themselves are made and kept holy by the eating. Uh, that this was God's holiness is transmitted to the priests who confer his holiness, they are conduits of his holiness to his people. And we see it, this, the common gifts were given to them, and then it says they are made most holy. So you bring your grain, you bring your offering, you offer it up to the Lord, and now whoop, it goes through this kind of transformation where now it's most holy. The priests are made and sustained and kept holy through that eating, and then that holiness is transmitted to the people. Now, we can think about this more a little bit later, but the, the New Testament connections here, to me, are very clear. We're now all of us, as priests, we continue to receive God's holiness as we eat together at the Lord's table, right? Mm -hmm. right. And through the, the sacrament of Holy Communion has this deep kind of Old Testament root and backdrop to it as well. Okay, let's go on to um, the next section here, um, picking up with verse 4. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of, the, of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, if you're bringing pancakes to the Lord, which I'm all for, International House of Prayer, right? I um, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Okay, so the main difference between those first three verses and this next part is you had just a raw grain offering and now it's cooked. So if you're bringing your pancakes, you're bringing your different kind of cakes, you've got the oil in it and you're, you're cooking this up, you're cooking it on a griddle, offering it up to the Lord, here's how you do it. The thing that stands out to me um, from this section is that when you bring your offering, you leave the leaven. You leave the leaven. It comes up a few, at a few points here, right there in verse 4. It shall be unleavened loaves. It shall be a fine flour, unleavened, and so on and so forth. Why is this? Now, think back to um, your Old Testament history predating Leviticus. Where else does unleavened bread show up? At the Passover. And what was, what was the point of that? You can eat it right away. Okay, you can eat it right away. So it, it's quick, right? Why else? Would, would it be good not to have the leaven there? Mold. Mold. It, preser it, it preserves longer. It keeps longer um, also. So it serves that practical end as well. And then also, thirdly, so you've got that Exodus-Passover connection. You have the practical connection of it's just going to help with its preservation. It's going to stay longer if it doesn't have yeast in it. And then thirdly, the symbolic significance already there at the time of Leviticus where leaven was symbolic of decay and therefore of sin 
corruption, so that to have it be unleavened is a symbolic of and reminder of it being without sin, of coming, just like we saw with the burnt offerings, they were to be without blemish, right? And so in this sense, this is kind of the parallel with the grain offering, for it to be unleavened is for it to be without blemish in that respect. It doesn't have that, that agent of corruption and decay. Granted, a delicious agent of corruption and decay. It's helpful, but in this particular case, an unleavened bread. Um, and here, too, we see this a New Testament connection, too. I mean, these are these verses that I, I think uh, for a long time I would just gloss over, just read right past it, um, that suddenly take on a, a deeper significance when you have these eyes to see this. So go to 1 Corinthians, once again, chapter 5. And uh, any volunteers to read out here? I listen to my own voice enough, but uh, anybody willing to read uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8? Carl, thanks. Sexual immorality, immorality defiles the church. Mm-hmm. It is actually portrayed that there is sexual immorality among you. Oh, I'm sorry, one chapter before. Before? Yeah, uh, one chapter. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, starting with verse 6. Over 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of security and sincerity and truth. Okay. So here, Paul makes this kind of direct connection to the Old Testament, first of all, with Jesus is our Passover lamb. So this is maybe the most explicit connection made. There's a lot of allusions that are made to this connection of Jesus being the Passover lamb, the fulfillment of that um, Old Testament sacrifice. And you remember the, the Passover lamb is the one that was killed. His blood was smeared over the door so that the angel of death would pass over those homes. Now Christ is our Passover lamb. His blood is, so to speak, smeared on the doorposts of our heart as we receive it in the Eucharist, as we place our, our faith in him and live in that faith. And now Paul says, you really are unleavened because you belong to Christ. You have been sanctified and made holy by his blood. Therefore, he says, cast out the old leaven. Well, is he talking about bread here? No. Well, he's, he's using this in more of a, a moral and an ethical way. See, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out that old leaven. So not with the, the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but instead with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's, he's picking up on that symbolic kind of connection there. And my question is, what are examples of, of yeast or leaven that we as Christians ought to remove? What are those things that we need? And there's, I mean, I think there's probably no end of ways that we could put this, but what are some of the things that, whether it be we think what Paul had in mind here, or what are things, especially in our day and age, that you think as Christians, we really ought, need to drive that out of the, the leaven of faith or the, um, the lump of faith, as it were, um, as we trust in him. Is there anything that jumps into your mind 
as we reflect on that? Division. Division, yeah. Where, and this is a big thing in 1 Corinthians, uh, where Paul is um, addressing God's people who had been divided. They were following different people within it, and there were factions among them. I think that's absolutely one of the leaven, bits of leaven or yeast that Paul would say, get that out, drive that out, cast that out when you see that in your midst. Yeah. Other things that come to mind? The leaven that we want to remove from ourselves and from the body of Christ. And the seven deadly sins. Okay, then you got your seven. Okay. Can you name them? Uh, anger. Okay. Jealousy, envy, greed, lust, procrastination. What? Pride. <laughs> Is procrastination really one of them? Uh, yes. Wow. Well, so sloth. sloth. Okay. Well, and and uh, gluttony, anger, pride. Yeah. Pride probably heads the, the pride of place. Yeah. I'm impressed. Okay, that's really good. So, okay, so yeah, you've got your, your seven deadly sins. And uh, a friend of mine uh, recently completed his dissertation on Luther's use of that uh, seven deadly sins tradition, that Luther continued to use that as kind of an outline for, um, you know, convicting us and, and self-examination, recognizing um, the sins within us. And it's a good starting point, right? Along with the Ten Commandments, of, hey, where, where am I struggling in these areas? Where are those things, those areas of, of pride or gluttony or, heaven help us, procrastination and sloth um, that I need to repent of and turn to the Lord in? That's an, a, a great example of some of that, that level. I don't want to belabor the point, but is there anything else that, um, that jumps to your mind when you think about this? I think Paul purposefully keeps it kind of open-ended um, to think about, yeah, you know, what are what are these different sources of leaven that might be in our lives? And you raising your hand? Yeah, uh, discontent. Discontent, yeah, for sure, because discontent just tamps it down, right? Uh, it just or puffs us up. I don't know. I don't want to press the analogy too far, but um, yeah, discontent is one of those uh, sources of of yeast or leaven in our contemporary culture that are really encouraged, right? In some ways, our economy hums on discontent. Um, we want people to be discontented. We want us to be looking for and longing for more, not to be happy with what you have, because that's what keeps things going. That's what keeps us buying. And uh, boy, there, that can be really hazardous for our, our spiritual health. Yeah, Bill. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the concept of what goes around comes around. Uh-huh. And also, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. And so you can go back to the first few chapters of Genesis sure. and see the things that we struggle with today yeah. have been going on for thousands and thousands they, of years. Oh, yeah. I mean, Cain and Abel, greed. Yes. Uh, the, the, Anger. The, the golden calf. I right. Mean, uh, all of those things, it, what goes around comes around. Yes. It's, so the, the yeast... Is, is not new. No, that's, a, that's exactly right. Yeah, and so what, I mean... What we read about in the paper yesterday is probably about the same thing they had about 5,000 years ago. That's right, exactly. It's a little bit different twist to it. In the Sinai times. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, yeah, there's nothing new under the sun. What, what is new or what changes is we find new expressions, new opportunities, new ways to exploit and exacerbate our sinful nature, Right. Now, I mean, I think about this, I'm going to digress just a little bit, but even, I was in high school 20 years ago, and I did dumb stuff in high school, like all of us did, 
Mostly it lives on in stories that I tell to my kids, right? Um, but for kids in this generation, you do something dumb in high school, where does it live on forever? Oh, it's, yeah, it's on the internet forever and ever. Amen. Like it's going to be there uh, always. And I think, wow, that's, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, but we do find new ways to get our idiocy out there for all to see and even for on a kind of permanent record. What a blessing to have true forgiveness and redemption in Christ, even in, in those things. Eileen, were you raising your hand? Uh, well, I was thinking of selfishness in this talk. Yeah. These movements where you need to take care of myself so that I can be born and care for others. Sure. And I just, when I hear people saying that, I say, truth, you know, point, like you... Got to look out for number one. If you take care of others first, you kind of come along. Yeah. Well, and this was kind of to Carl's point as well, right? That if, um, if you say, well, I'll get around to offering... Uh, these sacrifices up to God, and uh, then you're probably never going to get around to it. There's always going to be something else um, that is going to jump in. Uh, uh, the author, novelist Walker Percy, he said that our modern problem is that we're all dealing with a giant suck of self. <laughs> it's like our, our human sinful propensity is like this black hole that will just continue to draw things into it. And what we try to do by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit is to flip that and to invert that. We need to be intentional about it. It's not going to come naturally. It comes foreign to our sinful nature. Um, in order to, you know, I picture it like a warped board, right? And when you've got a, a warped board, you can't just assume that it's going to go back to normal. You need to take countervailing measures to try and um, straighten it back out. As, as believers, we have uh, warped and sinful, crooked hearts, right? And so it's God's continued work straightening us out through the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. So, so this leaven, and another thing that Jesus mentions uh, multiple times, is the leaven of teaching of, and a false teaching. Jesus cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He cracks me up in that passage and give the fuller context. But Jesus says that, and the, the, the disciples start ribbing one another and saying, I knew we, we shouldn't have forgot the bread. And, and Jesus has to come back and say, guys, okay, I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about the teaching. Hello, McFly, hello. Uh, like, oh, yes, of course, Lord, we knew that. All right, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 2. Continuing uh, on to verse 11. He says, No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, as we said, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the, for the grain offering of the first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. You shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Okay. So here, this, uh, another addition has been brought in. We've talked about the frankincense. There's the oil. Um, and now this third element that's introduced to the offerings of salt. Salt. Now, this is really interesting, and it even uses this phrase, the salt of the covenant with your God. Now, covenant is a really important 
Old Testament concept and term. It's not one that we use quite as much, although it's there in our worship service every week when we say, this is uh, um, my blood of the New Testament. It's the same word for covenant. Testament, covenant, same idea. Okay? The covenant is the promise that God had made to his people. Going back first to Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham out of Ur, and he says to Abraham, in you and through you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. He makes that, that promise, that covenant with Abraham, which then in Genesis chapter 15, he validates and um, affirms to him when he calls on Abram to cut a bunch of animals in half. And then Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Remember this, God said, look to the stars and see if you can, if you can number them. God's making that covenant promise with Abraham and with all of his followers, with his people after them. Now the salt is called the salt of the covenant. So what would be, just think about what you know about salt and its nature. What would be the connection with that covenant that God has made and with salt? Yeah, Carl. Our hearts. Say more. Our hearts. Our hearts. You know, you know, salt is bad for your heart? Is that what you're saying? He's not interested in our sacrifice as much as he is interested in our hearts yes. that are behind the sacrifice. Okay. The salt would be the the intention. Okay. So thinking of salt as like the intention of our hearts, I think, that, I think that's true. Let's go, but let's go further. What did you say? Preservation. Preservation. Okay. Is this what you were going to say? Too? Endurance. Endurance. Good. Okay. So think about this um, as far as the, that covenant with the Lord goes. Um, he wants to ensure and remind his people that his promise will endure, that it will be permanent. That it is going to preserve his people from age to age, even as salt as you, is used as this um, agent of preservation in our daily lives and with our food. So the salt of the covenant is this reminder, as we put the salt into the offerings, it's this reminder that God's promise, his covenant, stands fast. The word of the Lord endures forever. You and I can be sure and certain that he is going to be unfailing in his promise to us. That he's going to, to keep it up, come what may. I think that's the, the first and fundamental point of this um, place of salt in that covenant. Yeah, Bill? Uh, maybe I'm stretching it too far. I, I, I'm, all, I'm all for that, so continue. I, I, I don't want to get too carried away with this. Everything up to this point, up to salt, is a, is a manufactured product in one form or another. Frankincense, oil. Yeah. It, the animals, the grain, it's in a partnership. It's man and God working together uh -huh. to create it, to create something entirely new and different. Salt, on the other hand, comes from the earth. Sure. Salt is God's. Yeah. I mean, we don't make salt. We don't make salt. It, 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 you, you get it, and it's, you don't change it, you don't do anything to it, and with that, you can preserve the rest of it. But I can't tell you, I, I just keep thinking of the yeah. fact that the Manistee salt mines, they have been there since before my time. Since Moses, right. <laughs> and they'll be there long after my time. Right, right. Uh, they've been there probably almost, well, a long time. Long yeah. Time. And if we mine that salt in Manistee and don't do anything to it except crush it and put it in bags. Yeah, no, it, th this is true. It's an unchanging. <laughs> <laughs> 
know demons. I, w- I wish I could show you guys uh, my binder that I, I use uh, that have the worship service in there. Between pages 10 and 11, there's a smushed fly. <laughs> Wham! I want Miyagi on him. But um, this is really interesting, um, that unchangingness and that it's, it's directly from creation. I think there could be something to that. And that God, uh, this is a indicative of God's promise that it's fully from him. We're, we're not corrupting it. We're not adding to it. We're not, um, it's just solely given from him. Esther, yeah. yeah just thinking of salvation. Yeah. You know, it, it's totally God's doing. Yes. He did it all. Yeah. It's a gift to us. It's, he did it all. It's a gift to us. It's his uh, single-handed salvation for us. So salt can be indicative and symbolic of, of all of these things. And so he says, make sure that you've always got that salt in these offerings, that reminder, my covenant promise to you. Now, when we talk about salt, I think we also um, are uh, straight away going to think of Matthew 5.13 and the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says that you are the salt of the world, salt of the earth. Okay? Now, what do you, how do you understand that? What do, you, what do you understand Jesus to be saying there when he says, now, you, y'all, are the salt of the earth? How does that fit in with this idea of salt and the, the different properties of, of salt? I see it as uh, salt enhances flavor. Okay, salt enhances flavor, and so we should all go into culinary arts? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no. You're, you're valuable. You're valuable. Okay, back to the worth your weight in salt idea. Good. But I, I, think, I think you're onto something here, George. Sorry, I didn't mean to make light of it. Go, um, say, say more about that. Well, uh, then uh, if we're the salt, yeah. then we're enhancing his word. Okay, enhancing his, his word, enhancing... Yeah. I heard Chuck Swindoll speak on this passage once. Uh-huh. And he said when he was learning this passage, he said, it, it goes on, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And what he's yeah. saying is reminding me Chuck Swindoll was like, well, wait a minute, salt's like the most stable thing on the earth. Like, its half-life is, and he's like, how could it lose its taste? Yeah. And it occurred to him that it loses its saltiness when we muck it up with other stuff. Mm. It gets... Too much garlic. <laughs> well, or dirt. Or, you know, sure, you right. too much rice in the salt shaker, and it's yeah. not going to season the, the same way. If we yeah. allow our salt of the earthness mm. to be... Mm-hmm. Um, diminished by getting mixed in with other things, sure. you lose the salt. Yeah. And I, I thought there might be two something. Yeah. When speaking with, you know, sometimes you need to leave the leaven out, sometimes you need to leave the impurities out. Yes. I think there, there's a connection here. There's an admonition in this word to holiness and toward the continued uh, pursuit of holiness and um, striving after the Lord in our lives of sanctification. Um, nodding, not uh, seeking to, I mean, it's, it's the Lord's work in us and through us, but just like he'll go on to say, you are the light of the world, right? You're, you're, the, you're the light of the world. You are the light of the world, um, however you live, but what we can do is sometimes we can cover it up, right? Hide it. Hide it under a bushel basket? No. Uh, compromise that salt? No. It's a, a less catchy Sunday school song, you know? <laughs> Put too much rice in the salt shaker? No. Uh, I'm going to let it season. Um, so that, this, is, this is part of it. Any other thoughts on what it means to be salt of the earth? Yeah, Eileen. So I went off on the uh, self-preservation of the endurance. If I take that personally, I am the salt of the earth. Yeah. I am 
Good. Yeah. I like that. Okay, so what Eileen said is that um, us as Christians are, we are ourselves um, being the salt of the earth, testimony of God's faithfulness and that he continues to keep his promise. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's, I think that that's spot on because you think of, uh, you know, uh, you are my church and the, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And the fact that this lowly group that starts with a dozen disciples, loses one of them, goes apostate, has now become a worldwide, transcultural, transhistorical movement of billions of people. It's one of, uh, in spite of all of our sinfulness and all of our frailties, or maybe not in spite of it, but that too, in with and under all of that, it's a sign that God is faithful to his promise. We have no business still being here today if, if God's word and if his promise did not endure, right? Um, it's not because of, of our wisdom or our faithfulness. Um, I've shared the anecdote before, I love this, of uh, Napoleon. Napoleon was no friend to Christians, and uh, he was uh, quite an antagonist of the church, in particular the Catholic church, and you know, really wanted to, to drive, drive them out. And, but he would kind of let them hang around, and uh, he, he wanted just another way to show his, his dominance. And he was um, boasting to um, a, a Catholic bishop once and saying, you know, bishop, that if I wanted to, I could destroy the church. And reportedly, the bishop responded to Napoleon and said, <clears throat> uh, my dear emperor, the, the church, and especially her leaders, have been trying with all our might to destroy the church for thousands of years. We have not succeeded, and neither will you. Uh, there's so much truth to that. Like God is preserving and has preserved the church, not because of how great we are, but in spite of it. And, and there's another testimony of his, of his grace through the ages. Yeah, Carl. Is there, the connection with salt and God is, is, you know, like I am the door, you know, right. is, is God in a sense saying, I am the salt here, I, my connection with you is through this salt. Uh, is there that kind of a thing there? I am the perception of salt. I am the, right. I am the you know, the, the quintessential salt. Yeah, yeah. I am the quintessential door. I am the, you know. Yeah, uh, it could be. I mean, he never goes, uh, to my knowledge, I can't think of a place where God identifies himself with salt quite that way, where he said, we would say that I am the salt, but certainly he uses it. And so by extension, I think we could kind of That's think of it in those terms. I yeah. and the Father are one. Right. You know, uh, yeah. we are one with Christ. Yes. I mean, he is the light of the world. Uh, ultimately, he's also the salt of the world. He's the ultimate preservation agent and the one that's enhancing all things. So yeah, I think there's, there could be something to that. Uh, just a, a couple of other thoughts on this with the, with the salt. Another thing that salt was uh, known for in the ancient world was uh, for its role in fostering fellowship and breaking bread together. So if you were having a meal with a friend, a companion, a neighbor, uh, invariably you would have salt there. And it uh, in fact became a term that was used um, to describe, it was like a, um, an idiom that was used to describe of fellowship or gathering together literally with salt, sharing salt. So we see this in Acts uh, chapter 1 where it's describing Jesus after he rises from the dead 
um, has 40 days with the disciples and says, and while staying with them, literally, while sharing salt with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And so there's this side of it too, of that fellowship, that friendship that we have with God and then with one another, it's the salt of the earth, we share salt with each other. Always keep the salt shaker right there on the table. Um, there's no similar statements about pepper. I don't know why pepper doesn't have, but that, there's, there's that. One other place that shows up in the New Testament is in Colossians 4. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I think that's a good prayer for any of us. Keep that grace, or keep that speech seasoned with salt. With that, uh, not bland. Not bland. That's right. This yeah. is a. Uh, I got a background in chemistry. Mm. Uh, symbol of sodium chloride. Yeah. Sodium, Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Did you guys catch that? Sodium connected to Sodom. What's that? What yeah. Lot's wife. Lot's wife yeah. turns into the, the pillar of salt. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting connection. Yeah. I was just saying, you know, seasoned with salt, seasoned with God's promise, his enduring promise. Yeah. Seasoned with God's enduring promise. Seasoned with his, thank you, Ben. Seasoned with his, with his kindness and compassion. Yeah, we'll get him. We'll get him. It doesn't say anything about how you ought to treat flies. So we'll just... All right, I want, I want to conclude with this. That God is in the business of sanctifying the ordinary. I feel like this is a, a, a regular theme in my teaching and in my preaching, and it will continue to be so. Um, I think it's, it's really a strong theme in our uh, Lutheran doctrine in particular. That God takes the ordinary, mundane stuff of creation and sanctifies it, consecrates it, redeems it for his purpose so that the place where he calls you and me to follow him is right in the midst of the ordinary and the mundane. The people take grain, okay? This is just an ordinary, regular substance. And now they bring it to him. And after it has that connection with his word, with the altar, now that ordinary stuff is made most holy. And there's a parallel here in so many different ways. Well, first of all, when it comes to our offerings, we take what sometimes people will say, filthy lucre, right? We take our, our money and we offer it up to the Lord. And I was thinking about this, guys, where one of the things, just a COVID thing that we've done is not to pass the plate, right? And I think this is a thing that has uh, outworn its necessity, to be, to be honest, and we've just kind of gotten into a habit of it. Um, why does it matter that we, we pass the plate and then after sharing, sharing the plate, it's not to try and guilt people down the pew, right? Say, all right, are you going to put something in there or what, right? Um, but as we take the gifts and tithes of God's people, and then what do we do with it? We bring it up to the altar and we offer it back to him, see? And it's, what is, what is money? Like money is, is neutral in itself, but it's a token of ourselves. It's a token of ourselves and all that God has given to us. We are living, you know, we are all ultimately renters uh, in this creation, right? All that we have is a gift from him, and we offer it back to him in prayer and praise and faith. We'll bring those offering plates back soon. Uh, yeah, because to me, that s symbolism of it is so significant. Yeah, Carla. Why can't we just simply take the offering plate that's there and collect our offering and bring that forward? Good point. Why do we have to pass it 
Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, you know, uh, what Carla said, why can't we just bring the plate forward? We could do that. And uh, maybe I'll talk with the acolytes about that because, um, you know, we can uh, continue to keep that, that symbolism and that practice, which I think is, is so uh, central to our faith, but one of those things, again, you might just kind of rush past. Um, but it's not just in the context of, of worship. It's throughout our lives where we offer up our vocations taking care of, of parents, taking care of kids, in our, uh, our, our, where we make our, our livelihood, caring for our neighbors, in all these different ways. Colossians chapter 3, I think, is one of the uh, greatest expressions of this. If you want to turn there, and we'll, we'll close with this. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I've got the confirmation kids right now. They're learning their, uh, their Bible song. So they know all the books of the Bible. It terrifies them at the beginning. They think, how will I ever know this? But it's possible. All right. Colossians 3, and uh, I'll pick up with verse 17. Paul writes, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, or we might think today, employees, um, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters or employers, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. We take our daily labors, we take our daily gifts, we offer them back to the God, back to God. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. For everything created by God is good, it says in 1 Timothy 4. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's what we continue to do, offering up those spiritual sacrifices to God, recognizing that he is the source of every blessing, the giver of every good, and in so doing, he makes it holy and gives it back to us. What a blessing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we give you thanks for all the many gifts that you give to us, undeserved, that we receive from your gracious and bountiful hand. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in returning them to you um, as an offering unto you and also as a blessing to our neighbors. Thank you, Lord, for your ongoing generosity. Give Give us eyes to see and hearts to believe in your generosity and beneficence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.